our scripture reading this morning for this passage is Psalm 100. Turn with me in your Bibles. I wasn't going to make you all stand for the entirety of the sermon. Psalm 100, a psalm for thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. Given to us in love for our good. One of the most beloved and familiar tunes sung by Protestants goes by the name of the Old Hundredth. We sang it when I was here two weeks ago. and It's based on this song. It was composed in 1551 by Louis Bourgeois for John Calvin's Geneva Psalter. And it was arranged by William Keith, who was a personal friend of John Knox. In fact, the melody for the Old Hundredth, the one in the Geneva Psalter, is the melody to which we sing the doxology. So as we walk through this passage, let us keep in mind that this is a song of worship. Starting in Psalm 93, David takes up the theme of the Lord as the coming king. And the 100th Psalm is the doxology at the end of this motif. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. Psalm 94, the Lord will not forsake his people. The 95th Psalm, the Lord is a great God and King. Psalm 96, proclaim his majesty throughout the earth. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns over all his enemies. Psalm 98, the Lord has done wondrous things. Psalm 99, the Lord is holy. Psalm 100, the Lord has dominion over all creatures. All of our lives are owed to him. He alone is worthy of praise. He is man's creator. Provider, benefactor. But you see, friends, if we're not watchful, we can find ourselves walking in entitlement and ingratitude and not even be aware. Ingratitude is sneaky. What makes this passage as relevant today as when it was written is that it beckons us to lift our gaze to the Lord and ever be mindful of his transcendent goodness. We shall examine this passage under three headings. First, 
the invitation to give thanks. Second, the obligation to give thanks. And third, the motivation to give thanks. This leads us to our first heading, the invitation to give thanks. David writes in verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. As Pastor Anderson alluded to, Psalm 100 is seen as a hymn that was sung at the gates of the temple prior to entering into it and offering peace offerings. This is alluded to in Leviticus chapter 7 verses 11 and 12. And here in Psalm 100 verse 1, the call is extended not just to the Jews entering the temple, but to all the inhabitants of the earth. As such, this is an evangelistic song, an invitation of all people from everywhere to come and to give praise to God. It's also a messianic psalm in that it looks forward to a redeemer, a coming king in whom all the earth and all the people will delight. This is fulfilled in Christ. God only has one people, and one plan of redemption for all peoples. There is not a plan of redemption for the Jews that's different from the plan of redemption for Gentiles. God only has one people, and they are those who look to Christ as their Savior. And here in verse 1, the invitation is extended to all. Anyone who will may come. I know that many of you all here today have responded to Christ's invitation to come to him. You love the Lord, gathering with his people, hearing his word read, preached. But I would not assume that this is the case for everyone in this room. There may be someone here investigating. And to you, the invitation is being extended. Don't let your sin hold you back. Jesus' blood shed on the cross is more powerful than your sin. And he will wash you and make you clean if you come to him in faith and repentance. God is inviting us to fellowship and communion with himself. And it doesn't matter what you've done in life, where you've been, or what has been done to you, or what you're doing right now. The call of God is extended. In Christ, there is forgiveness, fellowship with the Father. The invitation is extended to all, anyone, everyone may come. Because God reaches out to creatures lost in sin and invites them to himself, offering forgiveness through the Son, this is good reason to give thanks. And this leads us to our second heading. And the body of the psalm, the obligation to give thanks, verses 2 through 4. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. If you follow along closely, you will see that there are seven imperatives or obligations in verses 2 through 4 in this psalm. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Give him thanks and bless his name. Notice with me how comprehensive our obligations to give praise to God are. They encompass our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. In verse 2, David writes to serve the Lord with gladness. Here, the psalmist declares that the service of the Lord is not to be done as if it's a hardship or an imposition. But we are to do so joyfully. In verse 3, the psalmist writes that we are to come into his presence with singing. Now, this completes the thought started in verse 1. That God has called people to himself is in itself grounds for joy. Think about it. A holy God calls sinners to fellowship and communion with himself. But you see, friends, it's verse 3. Couched in the middle of these obligations which is the focal point of all the obligations listed in this psalm. What the psalmist has done is incorporated a Hebrew literary device to highlight a central thought within a passage. It's like taking steps in a ladder. Know that the Lord, he is God. What David has done in highlighting the centrality of knowing the Lord, he is God, is reminding the audience that Yahweh is their Elohim. The one who delivered them from bondage, revealed himself on the mount, gave them his word. Now this is rich in Old Testament Trinitarian language that I don't have time to unpack here. I'm sure Pastor Anderson will when he gets here. But what David is doing is distinguishing this God from all others. He's saying the Lord, he is God. You see, friends, creatures were made to worship and we will worship something. The call here is for people to know there is only one true and living God, and it is he we are called to praise. David further elaborates the obligation of verse 3 by adding, it is he who made us. We are his. Or as the old King James reads, not we ourselves. You see, friends, we didn't create ourselves. We are not autonomous beings as much as we like to think that we are, but we are dependent creatures. Our being and all that flows from it are dependent upon the Lord. You see, friends, we're made in God's image, holding his impression in our very being. And as creatures made in his image, we are covenantally bound to him in our own minds and due to the introduction of sin in the fall the impression of the Lord within us is obscured and we tend to get the 
creature-creator distinction confused. Usually this is done in one of two ways. First, we tend to think of ourselves as non-contingent, necessary beings and that God is somehow dependent upon us as if the universe revolves around us and the Lord is begging us to let him into our world. Or we project deity upon the created effects. But as necessary and essential, the triune Godhead existed before all creation in blessed fellowship with one another. They were complete in their unity. And in creation, the triune Elohim extends the blessing of existence to creatures. We're obligated to the Lord simply on this basis alone. It is to this Godhead that David is writing that we must glory in our dependence upon. Further, the psalmist writes in verse 3 that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This speaks to divine ownership, provision, protection. By declaring God as the shepherd of humanity, David is saying we not only owe our existence to God, but our subsistence as well. And he's encouraging all people to give thanks for this. As you all well know, the history of Israel is not so illustrious. At many points, they worshipped idols, just as the nations around them did, whom God had not been revealed. And the root of their idolatry was that they did not know that the Lord is God. We see this clearly with Israel. When they were leaving Egypt and Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, that as Moses tarried, the people urged Aaron to fashion the golden calf. Aaron, for some reason, not only fashioned the calf, but he pronounced the calf as the Yahweh, the Elohim, who led them out of Egypt. See, friends, they didn't know that the Lord, he is God. So they made one. Calvin writes, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it substitutes vanity in an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. Daily experience shows that the flesh is always restless until it has obtained some figment like itself with which it may vainly solace itself as a representation of God. People will worship anything, themselves, their own desires, sex, money, power, leisure, their careers, their family, the list is endless. But none of these things are worthy of worship as they are not the source of our being. 
And apart from acknowledging the Lord as the one to whom worship and service is due, who is the source of our very being, we'll replace him with anything. It's easy to think that our subsistence is from our financial security, our careers, or our job, our education, anything. But when we attribute our blessedness and our subsistence to anything other than the Almighty, then what we're doing is making that thing our Elohim. Just like the Israelites at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. This leads us to our last heading. The motivation to give thanks. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Verse 5 is the reason for verses 1 through 4. David has given us the what. Now he's giving us the why. You see, friends, obligations and motivation goes hand in hand. God isn't a taskmaster simply handing out directives, nor is he so permissive and arbitrary to where he overlooks our obligations. A significant issue with contemporary church trends is that there is a tendency to divorce the two. Focus either on our obligation, which produces moralistic legalism, or we focus on our motivation, which, which is no, nothing more than self-help and therapeutic deism. Our motivation and our obligation inform one another. And David brings this full circle in verse 5, telling us exactly why we worship and serve the Lord. Look with me here. Verse 1. Make a joyful noise. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Come into his presence with singing. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Know that the Lord, he is God, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So what does God's goodness have to do with joyful service? Especially if things aren't particularly going so well. Perhaps our job security is uncertain. Trouble with your children, marital issues, health problems, a crisis you've not even told anyone about. Friends, God is still good. 
David does not tell us to give thanks to the Lord because things are favorable with us. Nor is our giving thanks to God preconditioned upon life's circumstances. When we have no financial need, our children are walking with the Lord. We and all of our loved ones are in excellent health, even if our party is in control of the government. What David does is precludes all of life's circumstances regarding why we give thanks to the Lord and focuses on the only thing that matters. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So the condition this is speaking to is to get us to the spiritual place in our walk with the Lord where everything can be completely upside down, but we're still walking steady, stable, and consistent. Because the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You see, friends, goodness is not something that God has. It's what God is. Goodness is not a standard above God which he must strive to meet. God is the I am that I am. His characteristics and his person are identical. God is love. God is light. God is holy. Friends, the Lord has manifested his goodness to us, blessing us with existence, subsistence, his word, his spirit, and his son. To reduce God's goodness, love, and faithfulness down to what we possess or any other temporal circumstance, is to do a grave injustice to the Lord. As I stated before, God's characteristics are inherent to his being. His goodness, faithfulness, and love for us transcends our temporal circumstance. His very presence with us is his manifest goodness and steadfast love. The Lord never said that if we came to him, that we would be exempt from the harsh realities of living in a fallen world. But what he did say is that no matter what happened, that he would be with us through it all. Theologian Michael Horton writes, The attributes of God flow from his being in its infinite perfection. As we read scripture, God has many wondrous attributes, yet we are not to think of his attributes as like ingredients of a cake. Put them all together, and that is how God is composed. The attributes flow from his essence. They describe who he is, but they are not parts of him, like gears in an engine. We cannot use our temporal circumstances to gauge whether God is good to us or not. If we do when things are good, then we'll think that God is for us, or worse, that we're deserving. When things are difficult, we'll think that God is against us. Friends, we don't praise and serve the Lord because everything is going well with us. We do it in spite of whatever is going on in our lives. God's goodness, 
steadfast love and faithfulness transcends temporal, momentary hardships and difficulties. Friends, we worship and serve the Lord because he is good. In conclusion, what we have heard is the invitation of the Lord to all people to come and to worship him, the obligation of all people to come and to worship him, and the motivation for people to come and to worship him. If you're here and you have not placed your faith in Christ, I'm glad that you're here. You can speak with me or the pastor or any of the leadership here following the service. I'm sure we would love to get to know you, for you to get to know us. The Lord is inviting you to himself, and he truly is a good God. For those of us who are here who know the Lord, my prayer is that the transcendent goodness of God would be your reality. That we would worship and serve the Lord without regard to what else may be going on in our lives. You may say, that's all good and fine, preacher, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. And it doesn't seem like God is so good. Friends, the ultimate goodness of God was expressed in that he sent his son to die for our sins. No one here has to atone for their own sin. Christ died to take away our sin, and that's the greatest gift that surpasses anything we may face in this life. This is why, regardless of what life may hold for us, we can give thanks to God. From the old hundredth, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell, come ye before him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed, without our aid he did us make. We are his flock, he doth us feed, and for his sheep he doth us take. Oh, enter then his gates with praise, approach with joy his courts unto. Praise, laud, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do. Because the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure, his truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age endure. Let us pray. Father, we glorify and magnify your high and holy name. We thank you for your transcendent goodness toward us. Father, you said that you'd never leave us nor forsake us. Father, that your presence abides with us. And that's not dependent upon circumstances, the things that we go through in life. But Father, as we uh, seek to be elevated into that place where you exist, O oh Lord. Father, we want that reality to be our ultimate reality that we would not be discouraged, that we would not look with the, the, the seeing of the eyes, but that we would know deep in our hearts that you abide with us. Father, give us grateful hearts. Never let us take it for granted. Father, forgive us for our entitlement attitudes. 
Father, as we look to you, we are ever so grateful for the work that you have done within us, the work of redemption, and the work on the cross of your son, Jesus. May we always be in awe of that. May we always be grateful. May we always be thankful. In Christ's name, amen.